Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to another members-only Beast Inside episode of The Daily Beast, The New Abnormal. And we thank you so much for being here. Today we have an extra special bonus episode where we're going to talk to two of the upcoming opponents, to two of, well, let's call them our listeners' least favorite Congress people, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. We're first going to talk to Greg Smith, who's running against Lauren Boebert in Colorado's 3rd District. And he's going to tell us about why he feels he'd be a worthwhile opponent to her. And after this, we will talk to John Cowan, who's actually a Republican who ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene in the primary in 2020 and lost to her. And he's talking about how he would run against her in the upcoming election next time. Hi, Greg. Hello, Molly. Welcome to the new abnormal. So... I have many questions for you. Let's talk about why you decided to run for Congress and what your district looks like, and then we'll talk about that. Sure. And it's all related. I I made a decision based on January 6th. You know, I've been involved. I've been on site for numerous terrorist attacks in my life. I know what a terrorist attack looks like. And what I saw on January 6th was probably the most egregious attack in my lifetime on America's democracy. And, you know, I'm sitting out here at my ranch in West Cliff, and I had to decide whether I was going to continue to sit at my ranch in West Cliff or whether I was going to do something. So I decided I could run against Warren Bulbert, who's my congresswoman, who seemingly was uh, live-tweeting the location of the Speaker of the House where terrorists were looking to attack and kill her. Wow. Talk to me about, so you were a Marine. I was. And where were you stationed? And talk to me a little bit about that. I was what is known in the Marine Corps as a grunt. I was an infantryman stationed primarily at Camp Lejeune. Probably the most notable deployments I had were into uh, Beirut, Lebanon in 1983. You know, I was there for most of the spring and early summer of 83. My cousins grew up there. Yeah, I have a fondness for Beirut. But on October 23rd, 1983, when uh, Hezbollah blew up the uh, Marine Corps barracks, along with the the French and Italian barracks, I was on one of the first C-141s out of North Carolina back over to Beirut to uh, help dig out my brothers. Wow. Then as you continued on, you joined Blackwater. Well, I, I never actually joined Blackwater. So what happened is after I got out of the Marines, I went back got an undergraduate degree, got an MBA from the University of Michigan. And uh, in 1997, I uh, met a gentleman by the name of Eric Prince. And, uh, you know, Eric at that point was a former SEAL. I was a uh, former Marine and we became friends. So I spent uh, two decades working very closely with Eric Prince. Wow. Yeah. That's the same reaction my parents had, Molly. (laughs) (laughs) What was the thing that made you know you couldn't do that anymore? Well, there was a couple of things, you know. So even though I was working closely with Eric, it was as an advisor. I actually, I was probably one of the first phone calls he made after Nisor Square in uh, 2007 and said, Greg, you know, get down here to Moyak and we, we got to sell this company. Can you explain a little more of that after what and where and the company? Yeah, so sure. Uh, Nisor Square 
was uh, a square right outside the green zone in Baghdad where um, four, maybe five Blackwater contractors right. slaughtered, I think, 17 civilians. Yes. And it was a horrific event. It shouldn't have happened. And children, uh, The training too. is inadequate. Right. Uh, they were all civilians, Molly. It, it was yeah. it, it was it was a massacre. It was it was people with automatic weapons slaughtering civilians. So you know, Eric called me and he said, "Come down to Moyoc, which is where Blackwater is located. It's a small town in North Carolina." And he said, "You know, you got to come down here. You got to help us figure this out." And I went down there and I said, "Eric, you're done at Blackwater. You're done. Blackwater's done. If you want to sell this to someone who knows how to run a uh, private military contractor, because that's not you." It took us three years, but we eventually got it sold. That case actually ended up with charges, and Trump ended up. I don't know if he pardoned those people. He did. So yeah, in December of this year, as a gift to Eric Prince which really set off every radar I had as a gift to Eric Prince. He pardoned the four Blackwater shooters that uh, participated in the massacre. Yeah. I remember seeing an interview with a person who had gone to America to testify in that trial. Yeah. There, there, there were numerous uh, Iraqis that came here to testify. And, you know, it, it is it was nothing more than a war crime perpetrated yeah. by America, Americans, uh, private military contractors that we were using to uh, secure the green zone. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what that was. So it was a horrific event. I looked at it and, you know, as a former military person, I, I understood what had happened, uh, but it was, it shouldn't have happened. It was a horrific event and people have never paid the price for that. And, you know, certainly Eric never paid the price for that. That was through 2010. I sold Blackwater for Eric. At that point, I didn't think I'd be doing anything else with Eric Prince. But uh, a couple of years later, he called me and asked me to help him um, set up uh, a logistics company in Africa, which I did. And it was simply a logistics company where we... Can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's really two things. We were looking to move goods and people uh, intra-Africa. So really from the Cape to Cairo, you know, from Kinshasa to Mombasa, we wanted to have... Uh, aviation and trucking capabilities to move, move goods and services into Africa and then around Africa. So we set up a company and we, um, you know, we agreed it'd be a simple logistics company. And I actually took over the helm of that company as the CEO. Eric uh, was the um, chairman and our principal financial backing was the Chinese government Wow! through a company called CIDIC. So Back to your question, though, Molly, you said, when did you part ways with Eric Prince? Yeah. When did you know When did you know it was over, Greg? Well, right. probably should have been over in 2007. But in 2015, it was reported to me that Eric was no longer interested in running a logistics company, that he was actually weaponizing our aircraft and sending them into the South Sudan and other places. So I confronted Eric. I went to our board. I talked to a person I respect more than just about anyone in the world, uh, Admiral William Fallon, who was on our board, former CENTCOM commander. And Admiral Fallon and I launched an investigation. As part of that investigation, we uh, reported Eric to the State Department and reported him to the Department of Justice. And uh, I was getting ready to resign from the company, which I'd had enough. But then Eric and the Chinese government officials that were on our board decided to also notify me that going forward, we would no longer be a logistics company, but we would be a security company supporting um, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Jesus. Eric and I parted ways. 
uh, Admiral Fallon and I immediately at that board meeting resigned. And I haven't seen Eric Prince in five years and hope never to see him again unless it's in a courtroom. Do you think that Eric Prince could ever be held responsible? I mean, clearly this man has committed innumerable crimes. Do we think that there will ever be a day when he will be held responsible for some of these? Well, Molly, and that's the issue. So people who know me and certainly all the national security reporters in New York and Washington and most of the investigator reporters know me. So I I panicked on November 4th, 2016. Yeah. And that date doesn't mean anything to a lot of people, but it means a lot to me because that is the day that Eric Prince and Rudy Giuliani pressed hard right before the uh, Clinton-Trump election and uh, pressed hard on the James Comey, Anthony Weiner laptop. And uh, I really think that uh, that the lies they were telling that day affected the outcome of the election and affected the press coverage leading up to that election. So it was clear to me that Eric had gotten into bed with Donald Trump. And I believe that for the last four years that uh, Donald Trump, William Barr, uh, Jared Kushner, and a whole host of folks in that administration uh, have been covering up for Eric. I know there was an active investigation into Eric uh, up until December of 2019. Uh, I know he lied to the congressional hearing held by Adam Schiff. And I know he uh, admitted he lied because he took a proffer uh, from um, the Mueller investigations to whitewash his lies. So do I think he will ever be held to account for the things he has done? If Trump would have been reelected, the answer is no. Right. But in fact... Trump was not reelected. The number two person in the um, Department of Justice right now, Molly, a guy by the name of John Carlin, is the person I reported the crimes I suspected Eric of. I reported to John Carlin in 2016 those crimes, and I'm hoping he's going to take him back up. So this district is leans pretty heavily Republican. A lot of Democrats are always skeptical about when somebody is running against one of these Republicans that we really can't stand. Uh, this podcast particularly put a lot of uh, weight behind Louis Gohmert's opponent. How do you win in this district? But that district is really, I mean, that district is worse. Yes. <laughs> Texas's first district. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a political junkie. So Colorado three, you know, we're R plus six. Texas one was R plus 44 or something. Go on, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, R plus 44, I might set that one out. But R plus six, so Diane Mitch Bush only lost by 30,000 votes out of 800,000 cast. Yes, see, Jesse, I was right. It's not so red. Thank you. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not here to torture Jesse, but I kind of am. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, Jesse, uh, I've learned in 10 minutes that Molly is always right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about this district is it's got really three different components, right? So, so you, you've got the component that's out of Pueblo, right. which is really a blue-collar town on the front range. Okay, and then you've got everything once you leave the front range, everything else, which is really rural. I mean, the county I live in, Custer County, I think we have 5000 residents. Wow. Uh, you know, I don't see a neighbor unless I go out of my way to see a neighbor. Right. And, and that goes all the way to the western slope over to Grand Junction in the basic county. So we are a very rural area except for Pueblo. Uh, and, and then we've got a little bit more of the uh, the ski population, if you will, out of Aspen and then 
parts of Eagle County where Vail is, although I don't think Vail is actually in the district. Wait, Aspen and Vail are part of your district? Well, Aspen is. And wow. Half, half of Eagle County where Vail is is in the district. Oh, wow. So, you know, we're going to get a lot of national. There's a lot of people in, you know, your neck of the woods, Molly, that yeah. are, are very, very interested in this election out here. So how do you win this election? How do you flip 15,000 voters that voted for Donald Trump? Well, I'm going to do it with my military background and my rural background. So, you know, I'm going to go into VFW halls, uh, American Legion halls. I'm going to talk to the vets and I'm going to say, you know what? I understand why you voted for Lauren Boebert. I disagree with you. I disagree. I disagree. But I understand why you did. But if you want a representative of this district, that has the same beliefs you do. We don't believe what happened on the Capitol on January 6th was anything except a treasonous attack on our country. And I've talked to enough vets out here uh, over the last two weeks, Molly, to know that they, while they may not completely distance themselves from the Trump movement, many, if not most of them, believe that that was absolutely a a treasonous act on January 6th, and they're disgusted by it. And they're disgusted by Lauren Boebert's response. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's really important. Do you think some of the reason why Lauren Boebert got elected was because she was sort of a celebrity? She got elected for a lot of the reason that Donald Trump got elected, which he wasn't part of what people out here consider the mainstream. You know, we move out here to uh, rural Colorado because, frankly, we want a government that functions, but we want to be left alone. Right. So people out here will generally vote against the mainstream. And that's why I think I'm going to be a particularly good candidate this up until January 6th, I had no intent. I, I was going to retire out here on my horse farm. I was going to raise horses. But after January 6th, said, you know what? If people are willing to uh, elect me, I'm willing to go to Washington and serve. Right. How do you think Democrats can win these areas that really aren't traditional Democratic areas? Well, you're not going to win them by pushing a hard left Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, agenda. That just doesn't work out here. Uh, And and it shouldn't work because most of us, we want government support, but we don't want it in our faces, right? So, you know, let me just tell you about the two primary issues that I think about in this district right now. You've you've got to think about health care. Rural health care, Molly, it's a travesty. Yeah, that's certainly something I think about a lot. I've got to travel over an hour to see a doctor, okay? And then I'm lucky to see it. And the other thing that we have out here is we have tremendous food insecurity. Wow. So I live in a county of, like I said, 5,000 people. We had a food pantry show up at our uh, local K through 12 school on Saturday. There were hundreds of cars lined up, Molly. Yeah. And 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 I'm like, that's that's 20, 30 percent of my neighbors that are clearly in a position where food is an issue. So you've got to address the issues that are important out here. Uh, but you still have to be a mainstream Democrat, which I am. You know, I, I believe in all of the issues on the 2020 Democratic national platform, although I'm probably well to the right of the platform on Second Amendment issues. But my my entire district is. Right. Well, that I mean, I think fundamentally you have you. You have to run people who can get elected in their district, especially with Congress. Well, and the example I've been using with our campaign team is, you know, someone like Connor Lamb out of uh, Western Pennsylvania. When you look at Connor Lamb, he is a good Democrat. He believes in the Democratic platform, but he, he 
he's got to still be true to you know himself and the values of his community. So if you give up on the values of your community to kowtow to East Coast or West Coast far left liberalism, you'll never get elected out here. Thank you so much. This was so interesting. And we hope you'll come back as this keeps going. Yeah, it's going to keep going, Molly. And uh, thank you so much. And thank you so much, Jesse. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or. I prefer. Don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows. I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. And now we have an interview with John Cowan, who's going to be running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Hi, John. Hi, Molly. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the new abnormal. Thank you. Tell me the story of your life as it relates to your congressional run. Well, it may be hard to believe, but I actually ran for Congress out of a strong desire to serve the people that I work and live around. Right. This was no necessarily career aspiration or long-term goal or something that in my mother's womb I was formulating and others said, let's uh, run. Uh, I genuinely saw an opportunity for someone to maybe retake the mantle that the framers had put before us and said, hey, uh, we want just regular people 
to come serve in the people's house and not make a career out of it. So I decided to jump in. Because you're a neurosurgeon. That's right. And let's talk a little bit about, you ran in 2020 in a primary in which there were many people running. Tell us a little bit about your primary. Sure, yeah, well, it was an open open seat. Tom Graves had resigned, or he was saying he was stepping down, and pretty much in January of 2020, a lot of people started jumping in the race. Right. Uh, Marjorie had already jumped in literally the day that, I want to say the day that Tom stepped down, she immediately switched her campaign to the uh, 14th district. She moved to the 14th district to run, right? Yeah, and she had been running for Congress for about eight months prior in the 6th district, which is... Which is a harder district. Right. It's it's the one Lucy McBath ended up winning. And so there were, I think, seven other men who ended up jumping in the race. Several of them didn't live in the district either. There was a state representative, several, one former state representative, one former state school superintendent, uh, maybe one other businessman, and then an attorney. And so it was a pretty crowded field. And we, and then it was also interrupted by the shutdown in the middle of our primary. So I've never run a race before, but I've never certainly run one, didn't anticipate running one in the middle of a pandemic either. And that's kind of when everybody really locked down for about six, eight weeks. And you're a doctor, so you probably believe in science. I do. I actually do. I do believe in the germ theory and that masks help and social distancing and hand washing are good things. Right. You know, so we did shut down and uh, never really could have any face-to-face debates. Uh, during the debate, our, our, our appearances were limited. We did one Zoom debate with everybody on there. And uh, basically, we were doing a lot by phone and social media, trying to raise money. Right. I mean, talk to me about your district and how it elected Marjorie Taylor Greene and if you think they could do better next time. Well, you know, our district is a very conservative district. It's one that uh, it's, it's relatively rural. Education, healthcare, and the carpet industry are kind of our three big areas. Uh, and then agriculture. There's lots of, we have chicken farms, we have uh, uh, dairy farms and beef cattle farms and uh, soybean, cotton, uh, you know, you name it, we grow it. And, uh, but it's, it's been very conservative for really the last 50 years, whether that's been led by a Democrat, who's what I would call very conservative or Republican. It is an area, and I felt this too, that has been very frustrated with what's happened at the federal level. And I think this is why she got elected, is because people really felt like these guys are absolutely crazy in Washington, D.C. And they are many of them are trying to actively destroy the country through their policies and rhetoric and whatnot. And they looked at someone like Marjorie and said, we've got the answer to that. And they said, you know, she's a fighter. She'll say or do anything. And she's perfect. And, and I do think that's what they thought. We disagreed with that. We agreed with the fact that, that we've got real problems at the federal level and that our country, certainly with this national debt, cannot sustain itself. And with the rhetoric and the level of just dysfunction, we're destined to fail. So you feel like Marjorie Taylor Greene actually got elected for the same reasons that Donald Trump got elected. This idea, like, let's just blow it all up. Look, she was a female Donald Trump. I mean, there was no question about it. She cast her mold just like Donald Trump. In fact, she even called herself Trump in heels. She was Trump's biggest fan. 
it was it was really almost pathologic how much she worshipped Donald Trump. And and it's not to say that I mean I was pro Trump as well. I mean a lot everybody in our primary was and supported President Trump, but she worshipped the guy. And literally her rhetoric, her mannerisms, her tweeting were were very similar. Do you think that the Republican Party can ever kind of go back to the way it was before Trump? I think the problem is, is people viewed that as being ineffective government, that there was too much quagmire. I mean, those are the days of the, the quagmire. And then Republicans were spending as much money as the Democrats were in expanding government, yet we're the limited party, uh, you know, limited government party. But, but Trump spent a lot of money, too. Yeah, right. I, mean, yeah. I get it. I think, I think they just thought, well, we've got somebody who's literally going to stick it to the government and, and maybe he can crack that or drain the swamp as he was off to say, and, and, and Marjorie would say the same thing. I think what we've seen is we have a battleship of a government and it, it takes slow course correction to try to change it. And we've certainly, but I think unfortunately we've entered into a minefield and we really have to re-steer this big ship uh, lest we, we sink. My question for you is, do you think there's a way in which the Republican Party could actually help working people and because there seemed to be a cry from working people that they would like to be represented in the government. I think the problem is, is we don't have working people representing them. And again, I think it's why I was really pushing my candidacy is like, guys, I'm a guy who is very happy, very comfortable working and living in my community, seeing my family every day. And yet I'm willing to go serve in this capacity to try to restore some semblance of sanity, normalcy, and fiscal responsibility to a system where people, to my appearance, just they want to go live there. They enjoy the power. They, they love the prestige. They go there and stay forever. So and to that, one of the things I've done since, since I've been out of politics is I'm, I'm the Georgia chair of U.S. term limits. And, and I honestly think we're at the point well, we've got to limit these guys' terms and, and at least say, look, we're going to let you go up there and serve for a while, but don't get the idea that this is a permanent career for you, a permanent job. And I think if you do that, we might get a different breed of Republican and Democrat who volunteers for this job instead of says, you know, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to say or do anything I can to get elected and then stay elected. Here's a question, though, for you. We see in the House, they're up every two years. They don't behave better because they're up for re-election more often. If anything, the House is more partisan and more scary. So at least like when you see what happened yesterday with Bill Cassidy. He's a surgeon, by the way. No, I know. that's He makes me think of you because he is a surgeon, but he's conservative, but he has a moral compass. So... He voted his conscience, and one of the reasons he felt comfortable doing that, he didn't say that, but one has to assume that one of the reasons is because he's not up for election for another six years, and who knows what the landscape will look like then. I mean, I actually am for term limits. Well, I think that gets back to the concept of he's, he's, he's exhibiting what the fat framers intended a senator to exhibit, is, is they are there for six years, and so they can make these more deliberative, maybe controversial decisions, and and not necessarily power of the purse decisions, but sort of long-term strategy decisions that may initially not be popular, but best for the country. I would say in the House, I think it is still important, even though the, the electoral cycle has become so crass and so ridiculous, to expose those members to re-election frequently. 
I think you could argue maybe a three-year term in this day and age might actually be a little bit better um, because they are representing so many people and it's a, it is a bigger job than it used to be. But I think you, you solve that problem when you say, look, you, you've got eight years at most. And then at a minimum, you take four years off and then you can run again. I mean, I go back to Benjamin Franklin in the original Pennsylvania Constitution that had an alternate on, alternate off theory to it. And I think there's something valuable to that, that it, that it says, look, you're, you're here to serve a, a purpose for a certain amount of time. And then if you're great at it and you're wonderful, take a sabbatical and then come back to us. You know, maybe once you've actually done something for your district, uh, again, other than serve it in this capacity. And I, I think we just see, if, if you look at these same old voices, these same old people ginning up discord and, and dividing us further, these are the guys who and gals who've been there for a decade or more, you know? And, and, and I think that's a real problem. And it's something that if we don't, I just don't see any other good solutions. And certainly after January 6th, we've got to come up with some real strategies because like I said, I think we're in a minefield now with this battleship and we need to make a quick course correction to at least pull us out of the minefield. No, I am very excited about the idea of a Republican Party that is committed to lowering the temperature and and a Democratic Party that is. I mean, I think that everyone in the world feels that way. Are you concerned about the Republican leadership? Like, it feels to me there are a number of people who could be the leader of the Republican Party. I read that Trump is, but Trump is not on social media. And I wonder if you think there's a world in which there's a sort of that another leader emerges in the Republican Party. I think there will be. And I think there has to be. And, and I would say that that a true conservative will say there's probably not a single leader. But there is, if we want to be a big tent party, that we lead by committee, that we have several leaders, thought leaders. I mean, there was a time where the conservative party had some great and ferocious disagreements within being constitutional conservative. And I think we've lost that. I mean, and even I felt this when I was running, it was sort of like, gosh, if you're not in lockstep behind the president, we've got a problem. And, and, and again, it became acutely aware to me when, you know, whether or not Trump was projecting this or not, but sort of, you know, masks were a problem or, you know, and, and as, a, as, a, as a physician and, and as a surgeon who wears a mask every day anyway, I'm like, yeah, what's the big deal, guys? I mean, and it, and it keeps me from spitting in the wound. And so it'll keep me from spitting on the people I talk to and probably stop the spread a little bit. We can't have a party where it, it discourages dissent, where it, it, where it tamps down good ideas because there is an omnipotent leader who says, you know, it's my way or the highway. And uh, I think we got ourselves into that a little bit over the last several years. Oh, yeah. I think it would be hard to disagree with that. So you said that you supported President Trump. Did January 6th change anything for you after that and what you saw in the uh, trial this past week? Yes. You know, really since the election and the continued refusal to accept the results made me say that Trump either was unable to acquiesce to the demands of our democracy and because there has to be a loser, a winner or a loser. And I, I knew this too. I lost to Marjorie, but he was unable, incapable of doing it, or at least he surrounded himself with enablers who convinced him that the election was truly stolen from him. And I think that's a problem. And I think that really, to me, is the problem, that that, that, that concept happened in our democracy that has happened, you know, 40 times before 
and and we you know and we really never had a problem sort of saying you know we may take a couple of weeks maybe a court case here or there but we get a month and a half out electors have been certified and we're we're on cruise control we should be on cruise control at that point and we weren't to me that's a problem and I, and I'm going to take and I will go to my grave happy knowing I took issue with that. Yeah. What I've read about the district, and I've read there's a really smart guy who writes a lot for The New Yorker about the district, and he was saying that you could elect a non-nutty conservative in that district. I definitely think you you can, and I think we will. I I think Trump's appeal and his seductive persona that was sort of imputed to Marjorie was very powerful at the time when we were running. And I, and I think that did it. I do think January 6th changed some things for people. I think this light being shed on QAnon to making it more public, these folks who have been on Facebook maybe dabbling in QAnon only to realize like, whoa, those guys are manipulative and they're crazy, it may pull them back and saying, you know, there were a lot of tentacles that reached out into the dark corners of the internet that, that frankly... Congresswoman Green was a part of and peddled in that I do think people eventually will wake up and and see that there's a lot of uh, darkness there. Yeah, I do. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you. It's my pleasure. On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks in The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Molly Jongfast and he's at the Rick Wilson. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.